You're listening to Plenary Session. In today's episode of Plenary Session, we're going to talk about one randomized clinical trial that created quite the stir over the weekend. It was Impassion 130, a randomized trial of atezolizumab in triple negative breast cancer. It would be the first use of IO in this space. Next, we're going to have an interview with Dr. Brian Chan. Brian is doing a randomized control trial to test whether or not Dr. Gawande's idea of hotspotting or tailored interventions to medically complex patients does decrease hospitalizations. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It, it really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. All right, first up, Impassion 130, Atezolizumab and NAB Paclitaxel in advanced triple negative breast cancer. I have just 10 things to say about this clinical trial, which has already been discussed quite extensively on social media, including Twitter. So I'll just make 10 quick points. One, and I'm always going to make this number one as long as you keep making me do it. We thank X and Y of Z Company for medical writing assistance with an earlier version of the manuscript. And from the body of the paper, all of the drafts of the manuscript were prepared by the authors with editorial assistance from professional medical writers funded by the sponsor. Yes, professional medical writers crafting the manuscript for the optimal balance of hope and caveats. Of course, mostly hope and marketing, but uh, also some caveats. I have thought about employing some medical writers in my own life, and they've prepared a few sentences for me that I can use when I host dinner parties. Here are some of them. All the meals I have ever served in my house were prepared by me, with special assistance of Whole Foods, local restaurants including, but not limited to, Thai, Italian, and pizza places. All the beverages that you are enjoying were developed by me as well, with the assistance of brewers at InBev and several small to medium-sized wineries. So, you're welcome, and of course, you can assume that I and no one else did the majority of the work in preparing this meal. Well, thank you, medical writers. That really sounds perfect. It sounds very good. And um, I'm very pleased with how that turned out. I'm very pleased with my dinner party. Number two, when you study a drug that's being deployed in a novel cancer type, it is important to first ask yourself, what is the single agent activity of this drug in this tumor type? Okay, when it comes to IO, these generally were initially approved as single agents, usually in latter lines of therapy, and we know the single agent response rate. What about atezolizumab? This is a randomized trial, of course, in the frontline setting, frontline metastatic advanced triple negative breast cancer. What's the response rate if it were given as a single agent? Of course, in this trial, it's given in combination with nabpaclitaxel. So, Atezolizumab has a poor single agent response rate in this tumor type. In a phase one trial, which include untreated patients, just 11 out of 116 patients, or about 9.5% had response. This is a JAM Oncology paper. In latter lines of therapy, that percentage was even lower. Bishal Gaywali and I wrote a paper in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology on this topic, and we have studied all of the drugs that eventually came to market that had poor single-agent activity and only came to market in combination with other drugs, which atezolizumab perhaps may do, but maybe not. We will see. Uh, but still, perhaps it may. Um, this is a unique set of drugs. Lack of single-agent activity is generally associated with drugs that perform very poorly. We're talking about about a one-and-a-half-month average improvement in overall survival when tested in combination in the set of drugs that we looked at in our paper, which was every drug consecutively approved that lacked single-agent activity. If you think about IO in cancer broadly, you will see it is preferentially approved in tumor types for which it has good single-agent activity. For instance, in melanoma, nivolumab single-agent activity, pembrolizumab, 44%. The response rate in second-line non-small cell lung cancer was about 20% with nivolumab, okay? When you start to get to response rates in the single digits, you have a problem. It is a drug that is not very active, 
and it would be very unlikely to substantively improve outcomes. Okay. Also on this topic, the authors write that they paired atezolizumab with abraxane and not the perhaps more appropriate standard of care of paclitaxel because they worried about the steroid premedication that paclitaxel requires. I find this explanation to be interesting, um, but also a bit problematic, and I'll tell you why. This study started recruiting patients on June 2015. We knew in November of 2014 at a melanoma conference where Dr. Walchok and his group presented data that when you gave steroids in combination with IO and melanoma, it did not compromise efficacy. And I remember around this time at late 2014, 2015, people were talking as if this idea, this fear that steroids would temporize the benefit of immunotherapy drugs was perhaps misguided. And they were citing heavily this paper by Walchok. So I think that's one reason to perhaps doubt a little bit what the authors are saying. The second thing I think that's interesting is in July of 2015 in the JCO, Rugo and colleagues published the first fair comparison, in my opinion, of paclitaxel and nab paclitaxel, where both drugs were given on a weekly schedule in breast cancer. And this was not triple negative, this was breast cancer broadly, but what they found was that paclitaxel had a PFS of 11 months, and nab paclitaxel was 9.3, and that was not superior. The hazard ratio was 1.2, confidence interval 1 to 1.45, and a P of 0.054, meaning that it is very likely the case that abraxane is inferior with respect to PFS, and also in that paper, the suggestion of OS, then paclitaxel, good old paclitaxel. We can have another podcast about how Abraxane has carved out so much market share um, based on, you know, the rhetoric of how it should work better. But when you actually get down in the trenches and test it on the same schedule, um, you know, there are a lot of questions that are raised. So one question is, is it really the case you had to pair a Tezo with Abraxane? Second question is, this drug has very poor single agent activity. The third question is, why are you going in the upfront setting right away? Um, perhaps the best way to develop drugs in malignancies where patients often go through several lines of therapy is to first start in the last line of therapy and prove your drug improves the endpoint that really matters to patient survival and then gradually ask yourself by moving it up a line of therapy does it improve survival even more than the new established standard of care which is keeping them in the latter line so you know starting off i think we have to start off this trial by saying low pretest probability because of the single agent activity. We see some problems with perhaps the choice of control arm and perhaps some of this rationale of why the control arm was picked. Three, randomization had several stratification factors, liver mets, the use of adjuvant taxanes, and the pdl one threshold. This is important because we will see the full-on spin cycle for the pdl one threshold stratification factor, not for the other stratification factors. We will also see that when you do a trial, there are many, many, many subgroups you can choose to emphasize. Why are you choosing to emphasize some rather than other subgroups? Some people in pathology have already emailed me, one listener, and asked me to comment about this threshold. I'm going to have to say I'm going to fail you. I apologize. Um, pathologists have pointed out online that, of course, pdl one is an eyeball test. Although it is an eyeball test, we use different cutoffs. Um, to make clinical decisions. Uh, for instance, in frontline non-small cell lung cancer, adenocarcinoma, if your PDL1 one is over 50%, you may perhaps get pembrolizumab alone than if your PDL1 one were 1 to 49% or 0%, then you'll be talking about pembro in combination with chemo or perhaps chemo alone. There's some, you know, discussion there. But the fact is we use PDL1 one thresholds to make clinical decisions. But I would say, you know, if you want to stratify based on zero or some, that's okay. But when you report outcomes and you have a variable that exists on a continuum, you should report the outcome as a continuous variable or at every sort of threshold of pdl one staining. We'll talk more about that. Four, PFS was initially the primary endpoint, but overall survival was added as a protocol amendment. The trial sample size was changed um, midstream. Okay, are you kidding me? Overall survival is the only endpoint that matters or should be measured in a highly lethal condition like triple negative breast cancer. And, and 
you should pay careful attention to every single post-protocol therapy in both lines, and that better be up to U.S. standards. In other words, I want to know, by you administering your drug in this particular line of therapy, and patients go on to get all of the finest care we would have provided in the United States, is the outcome better than if they simply received the finest care we would have provided in the United States? That's the question for United States drug regulatory approval, which is really what I'm interested in. Um, that's the question that, you know, faces, that this trial really faces. Now, you could ask, um, what about the global setting? And I think there are a lot of challenges globally. Um, one of the realities here is that globally, some of these drugs like Abraxane and Atezolizumab are often priced out of reach, um, proving the drug works well in a setting where it realistically will never be afforded. This is a, a great philosophical debate, a great medical ethical debate, and you know, if you really want to delve into it, you should start with some of the papers around the early 2000s from Harold Varmus and Marsha Angel about some trials of AZT in Africa. But we can have that debate later. But right now, let's focus on the United States drug regulatory question, which is really what the market share of this drug will be or should or purports to be. Um, five. PFS is a useless endpoint in breast cancer. I'm sorry to say that. It sounds as if it should be meaningful. It is not. It is simply measurable, as Christopher Booth and Elizabeth Eisenhower so well put. It neither captures health-related quality of life, nor does it capture overall survival, and it has a poor correlation with either of those two things. If we are perfectly honest, patients care about only two things, living longer or living better, and this is neither of those things. This is the radiographic appearance of a tumor. Measuring a tumor is like measuring the width of a cloud. It is not a precise science. There's measurement error. You do not always feel bad if you progress. You more often perhaps feel bad when someone tells you you progress, the psychological knowledge that it's happening, not that you felt anything. A drug that improves PFS and not OS but adds cost and side effects is called Avastin in breast cancer and it was revoked from the U.S. market. Therefore, PFS in this trial does not and should not count. It was a foolish primary endpoint. The primary endpoint should have always been OS. They should have gone in the last line of therapy where OS events would have accrued faster. They would have shown this drug has a benefit. If you care about bringing a drug to market quickly, why are you going in the frontline setting? Go in the second line setting. Go in the third line setting. That's where you can bring the drug to market faster. Your argument that you need a surrogate endpoint to speed drugs to market falls apart when you barter the speed of a surrogate endpoint, endpoint for larger market share. And we see that over and over, and we see that again here. Okay, but let's talk about the PFS gain in this trial. PFS went from 5.5 to 7.2 months, or 1.6 months in the intention to treat population. That is not good. That is a miserable improvement in PFS. That is very marginal. That is not good. I mean, we can debate PFS, um, but no one should take the position that a 1.6-month improvement in PFS is what we should be aspiring for. It is beneath that. Um, yet it is the it is the endpoint that is statistically significant. The thing about PFS is, you can artificially kind of achieve significant PFS because PFS is a binned endpoint. What do I mean by that? Patients are not getting scanned on any random day; they're getting scanned per protocol in certain time intervals. And when you look at a PFS curve, it has this characteristic stair-step appearance. The drop in the stair-step is when everyone is getting scanned. That really allows you statistically to see that these curves or to detect that these curves are further apart than perhaps they may actually be. And if you change the frequency with which the scans are given, perhaps you'd get a very different curve. Let's also look at the pdl one subgroup because the authors love to hype this subgroup. But the PFS improvement is also marginal, 5 to 7.5 months in that group. Okay, point number six. Overall survival is what matters. Overall survival was no different between the two arms in the intention to treat analysis. Statistics could not be run on the pd one subgroup because of their own pre-specified statistical procedure. Okay, moreover, if you see in any trial a small change in PFS having a large improvement in OS, you must ask yourself if the treatments patients received on both arms subsequently were balanced or imbalanced and in accordance with or against the U.S. standard of care. That's very important because post-protocol therapy does affect OS. You want to make sure they got good post-protocol therapy that reflects your practice situation. But the supplement of this paper, which purports to offer that information, does not have the granularity to show 
all of the post-protocol therapy in a robust way. It just aggregates it all together across both arms. You don't know how many people got it in the second arm or third arm, what the drugs in the second arm or third arm were. Moreover, you don't know if there is a difference between the PDL1 subgroup in post-protocol therapy or the intention to treat group. On average, is there some imbalance that's preferentially shown in this subgroup that they're going to hype? Here's what the authors write. Although the boundary for declaring a statistical advantage for atezolizumab, nab, paclitaxel, and the intention to treat population at this first interim analysis of overall survival was not crossed and formal testing was not performed in the pd one positive subgroup, numerical increases in median overall survival were observed in both the intention to treat population and the pd one positive subgroup. You know, I think both of the authors and the journal should share in being ashamed for putting this statement in. Um, the journal is allowing the authors to draw the reader's attention to a numerical increase that has not been formally assessed for statistical significance or one that has failed the, the test of statistical significance. They should not be allowed to draw your attention to that, okay? It did not pass their own pre-specified test, and if so, they should say it is thus far a negative study for overall survival. Overall survival is negative. This is, again, I think, part of a broader trend we see, which is some journals are increasingly catering to the demands of the authors and the sponsors, and the authors' interests are largely those of the sponsors, given the deep and heavy financial conflicts in this space. So we see journals who once knew their duty was to the reader and the patients and the practitioners changing their allegiance to the sponsors and the authors. And this has been one of the most caustic forces, I think, in biomedicine. Seven, there's no doubt about it. When you add this drug to this treatment, it is more toxic. Okay, I won't bore you with the details there. Eight, this is how the paper actually ends. Quote, it is important for patients' pdl one expression status on tumor-infiltrating immune cells to be taken into consideration to inform treatment choices for patients with metastatic triple-negative breast cancer. I'm sorry, with all due apology, you have not yet proven that. You have not yet proven that pdl one expressing patients derive survival benefits from this drug, while patients who do not express pdl one on their tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes derive no benefit. You have not yet proven that. If you really wanted to convince the public, the reader, that this was a true effect, that there's some differential treatment effect based on pd one status, and I don't pretend to say there isn't. I mean, there perhaps well could be. That could be right. But the reader has to read this with an eye towards you know, truth and critical appraisal. It's the duty of the authors to try to provide the information to allow the reader to draw the conclusion. So the authors could easily report the hazard ratios of OS by every group by group. What was the hazard ratio in those with pdl one staining of zero? What was it one to 5%? What was it five to 10%? What was it 10 to 20%? And if you believe pdl one expression has something to do with the response, you will see the hazard ratio go from 0.97 to 0.82 to 0.73 to 0.63. In other words, that the treatment difference is getting bigger and bigger the more pdl one staining you have. Prove that there's some dose response here. You can even do some statistics then run it as a continuous variable. Also, why are we looking at PDL1? Why not tumor mutational burden? Why not look at some other sort of molecular biomarker you think is delineating who benefits? The point here is there are many ways to slice and dice the data. There are several things you stratified for. There are many, many subgroups you've looked at. You're choosing to emphasize overall survival in the PDL1 positive subgroup. Why that and why not another subgroup? It does look favorable, but is that the only reason you're emphasizing it? That's the core question. As long as you allow the design, the conduct, the writing, the manufacture, the packaging, the press releasing of all of the trial data to be in the hands of a company that stands to make billions of dollars if they succeed in convincing you and zero dollars if they do not succeed in convincing you, okay? That's the stakes here. They stand to make or lose billions. They have control over everything and increasingly, unfortunately, control over the editorial processes. Um, and one would want to look at how much reprint sales are going on in these kinds of situations, okay? So what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say here is um, we will 
need individual patient level data sharing as a temporizing solution to this problem so that people will be able to look at this data. And I know that these authors in their data sharing statements say, you know, to qualified investigators, you can get it. But, you know, let's be honest. Let's talk about real data sharing. Real data sharing would be is if the journal took the data and actually disseminated it and it wasn't held in the hands of, of the company and they didn't use words like qualified investigators, which, of course, is subjective and they can decide who meets or does not meet that criteria. Um, they can also make it very difficult to actually use the data, uh, as Peter Doshi has eloquently written in the BMJ about having used data only through certain portals, not being able to download it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of these may fall under the guise of protecting patient privacy, which is the, the thing that is said. Um, I think the more realistic reason is that the harder you make it to use and utilize data, the fewer people who will want to use or utilize the data. De-identified patient-level data could be released as an file alongside the paper at the time of publication in the future. That's very easy to do, could easily be done. Um, ironically, the cost of data sharing that people talk about is driven in part by the barriers that are being artificially constructed data sharing, like reviewing all proposals to make sure that they're a qualified author. Simply releasing data is a very cheap thing to do. That's just not what people want to do. Okay, number nine. My reading of this trial is this is a company desperately trying to change their trial midstream, hoping to eke out some win to trick, I mean, convince providers to use their toxic, costly drug that has poor single agent activity, that wasn't tested in a line of therapy, that doesn't have the same pattern where everywhere else immunotherapy has worked in cancer. It looks very different. It's being tested in the front line in combination. I think we have to be very critical of this as a profession. It's up to us. No one's going to do it for us. I think... Um, Unfortunately, that's the case. Um, we know PFS is not an acceptable endpoint in breast cancer. It should not be used here. There's a lot of debate online, which is whether or not you can have co-primary endpoints. I think you, you you can. You can budget your alpha. You can you know it doesn't mean you have more fa false positives necessarily. Um, that's not the issue here. It's not that they had a co-primary endpoint. The issue is that one of the co-primary endpoints is something that's really meaningful. That's the one you added on midstream. And the other co-primary endpoint is something that's simply measurable, that is used to cajole and pressure regulatory agencies to grant approval that can be leading to misleading patient campaigns to get patients up in arms, uh, or at least the patients who participate in patient advocacy groups, the groups themselves heavily funded by the industry to lobby for the product to be used widely. Um, you know... It's not a good endpoint. We have had this lesson in breast cancer. We've had it with the Vastin. We don't need to recapitulate this over and over again with Everolimus, with palbociclib, which I think I'll be talking about in another podcast. Um, we can just measure what actually matters. It will even make some of these trials cheaper. You won't need to do scans so, so frequently. You can do scans more in accordance with prevailing standards of care. Okay, 10. Let me tell you how to run this trial, okay? A simple trial in the United States powered for all-cause mortality in the second or third line. Investigator choice chemotherapy, maybe you can have a few arms of that or you can just leave it totally free investigator choice, plus or minus a tezolizumab or placebo. Um, ideally, maybe you, know, you do that with a powered trial for a meaningful benefit and not a marginal benefit, knowing that your drug has no single agent activity. I think you need standard of care post-protocol. The key is post-protocol care has to be good. The key is there's no need to go in the front line. The key is when you really have drugs that don't have single agent activity, you can run all the trials you want in the world. You will get some positive p-values. I don't know how much better off patients will be. And my review by Bishal Gaywali and I in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology suggests those drugs are extremely marginal. So you can spread the alpha error as you see fit in co-primary endpoints, but know that none of those co-primary endpoints should be endpoints that are not useful at all. All right, that's my take on Impassion 130. I think more questions are raised than answers. I think perhaps hypothesis generating warrants confirmatory study before our practice has changed. It's just that simple. All right, on that positive note, stay tuned for the interview. I'm back here in plenary session HQ with Dr. Brian Chan. Brian is an assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a practicing general internist and he does research focusing on high utilizing medical patients. Brian, thank you so much for joining us here on plenary session. Thank you, Vinay. Thanks for having me. 
So, you and I bumped into each other recently, and we started talking about these topics, and I thought it would be a really good fit for the audience. I thought they'd be very interested in what you, what you focus on, what you research. But before we talk about that, I wonder if you'd tell the audience a little bit about your own background. You've done fellowship in general internal medicine. That's, an, that's a fellowship people don't always think about, but it's an important fellowship to know about. And perhaps many of our listeners who are trainees might want to think about it for their own careers. So what can you tell us about that fellowship program? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, I, and I have to say, it was really, really great to kind of, I was listening to your podcast for like the first time <laughs> uh-huh. while I saw you on the tram and just said, I have to kind of introduce myself and, and this is where we are. Um, so thank you for having me. And um, yeah, and I think, you know, so, so I'm a general internist in primary care who's really interested in studying uh, medically and socially uh, complex patients and mm-hmm. interventions to help support their care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my foray into research really started in uh, residency, uh, which I did, completed here at OHSU, um, and really just kind of looking who, who were the mentors I liked and uh, who I thought I could uh, model after. Mm-hmm. and. Um, people like Sam Saha and uh, Devin Consagra and Anora Englander. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to kind of uh, work with them on some transitions of care interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, These are all expert general internists who also do a lot of work in health policy, health services research. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, there was a kind of project going on with uh, the C-Train, the, the complex care mm-hmm. uh, transitions interventions. and. Uh, you know, I think that kind of picked my interest about how do I get research expertise, um, skills, and I think through their mentorship, uh, learned about these general uh, internal medicine fellowships. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there was a Robert Wood Johnson one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is it clinical still there, scholars. or did it, did it fold up? On I lack think it's of changed. I the see. the missions ch- changed, so it's uh, the Health and Society Scholars, but it's it's very similar. But I see. I think the gist of this for for your audience is that this is an opportunity for protected time and mentorship, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, I, I think I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, but uh, <laughs> I think it's very important if you, uh, in trying to start kind of a, a research career, if you want to go that trajectory. And so... And this um, might uh, complement the skill set you have from being a doctor, but really hit very hard on the research skill set that you just may not have gotten too much exposure to. I know you, of course, have a master's in public health, but some people in the course of a general internal medicine fellowship actually get a master's, do they not? Yes, that's right. And I, I, I kind of, my career is a little bit uh, getting into medicine. I did a, I did the MPH first, mm-hmm. um, not knowing that I, I, that I wanted that clinical expertise, that clinical experience, and then kind of learned that that's, that's really my passion is being at the bedside and, and really working with patients. And I think that's really what drew me to primary care was developing that relationship in the, in the room. Um, but yes, I think to get additional skills. And I think the value of the clinician researcher can't be understated. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, we as um, MDs or, um, or, or DOs or, or kind of some kind of clinical experience have a lot to offer to researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll elaborate on that. I strongly agree with you, but you know, tell, yeah. Yeah, why do you feel that way? Well, I think, um, the whole, I think the whole reason that I'm interested in research really comes up with conundrums that I faced as a resident mm-hmm. or as a medical student, um, as an attending now. And being I, a clinician gives you the questions to ask. Definitely, mm-hmm. uh, definitely so. Uh, you know, uh, uh, when I did medical school, <laughs> in uh, downstate mm-hmm. uh, in, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. just seeing a lot of the poor transitions of care between um, you know, uh, low-income patients going into the county. There's no talk between what happens in the hospital and then kind of in their outpatient experience. I think that kind of led to some of the research questions I had as a resident in terms of transitions of care. Um, and as a resident and now as a you know, fellow and now as attending, um, a lot of my questions are how do we uh, manage um, these really medically and socially complex patients, mm-hmm. the, the, the cancer patient who has uh, opioid use disorder mm-hmm. um, and doesn't show up to their uh, infusions or their oncology appointments, gets fired from their clinic, uh, shopping, going to different clinics, mm-hmm. for example, um, I'm going to push you on this a little bit more, but I just want to echo one thing and maybe add to, to what you're saying, which I think is just so well put, um, which is another re- virtue, I think, of you know 
clinician researchers, particularly in health policy, is, you know, how often do I listen to somebody talk about health policy and, you know, present some fix for the problem of high utilizing patients? And, you know, as a doctor, you know, having spent time in the trenches, so to speak, working in these settings, you know that that solution is laughable and it's about it's going to last about 15 seconds before it doesn't work anymore. Um, so it's easy to toss out solutions. Um, it's a lot more meaningful if you kind of have that construct knowledge to know what it's like and what might be feasible and might not be feasible. Definitely. I mean, I think I think that um, this problem is is something that's so common and it's it's everywhere. We we are going to deal with this in the future, and and I think I wanted to kind of arm myself with you know research skills, expertise to be able to kind of thoughtfully think about this problem of, of high cost, high need patients or high utilizer patients because um, it is an important question for for policymakers. Um, and I think it's also important for primary care. I, I think a lot of this is how do we, uh, how do I improve the experience of caring for these patients? Uh, it's not just, uh, not just improving quality of care for patients, but for all, all, all players in the system, the system, uh, providers, experiences, you know, we, we have burnout and things like that. How do we improve uh, primary care so that, so that providers enjoy their experience, uh, patients uh, enjoy their experience, systems? Uh, That's yeah. your broader kind of career focus. Definitely. But, but let me push you, let me, um, but let me um, talk to you a bit more about the current project that the core of what you're interested in right now. And listeners may not, may not all know this, but, you know, obviously, I'm 100% sure you care about all the patients you see, but you have a particular research focus in um, medically complex, high healthcare utilizing patients. Why is that the case? Um, because we know through a number of studies that a fraction of patients utilize a tremendous amount of the services of healthcare. You may know the exact percentages off the top of your head, um, and and really account for much of the cost. And that might be fine if we felt that that money was wisely spent and every dollar was having tremendous return uh, in terms of improved health and quality of life for these patients. But I think many of us also feel like those dollars are not wisely spent, that many of them are spent foolishly or misguidedly or um, on the wrong priorities or services. Um, you know, why do you focus on this group of patients that are high utilizers? What is it about them? Yeah, I think, I think again, it really comes down to uh, and 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 so the number that people will throw mm -hmm. out there is uh, the top five percent use fifty percent of um, healthcare dollars. Is that how? Um, is that how much it is now? There's wow. a little bit of variation between Medicare and Medicaid, mm -hmm. um, but but that's kind of the the general rule of thumb that I think people are are, are aware of or using. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so that that's why I think it's a from a policy perspective that's a that's a big problem. I think from a clinical perspective, it is. Um, you're right. I think that there is. Um, a lot of low value care delivered to these uh, patients. There's a lot of, you know, doing doing the same thing over and over again. They get readmitted. We change their medications. They come out without any actual real changes. Mm -hmm. And I think that also brings up, mm -hmm. you know, part of my interest in the socially complex patients and kind of low income Medicaid. These are patients particularly affected by social determinants of health, mm -hmm. and. Uh, that's that's food insecurity. That's income, low income, uh, inability to kind of pay for medications. Uh, that's substance use, mental health uh, diseases that are not being treated, or lack of access to those treatments. So I think those are things that, um, as a healthcare system, we can do better, and we're kind of providing low value care. Uh, and we can do better for that for the for these patients. Mm -hmm. And and probably. In addition to what you've said, um, another reason why there is the low value care um, is probably also because um, by virtue of being so frequently hospitalized, these patients often have many, many diagnoses added to the chart. Doctors are prescribing many, many different medications. Some of these medications may have good data in certain situations, but you know we often lack very good data for what does this kind of polypharmacy mean? What does it mean to have a patient on 20 to 30 meds, um, but not address 
the underlying mental health issues that keep the patient from refilling the medications and staying on course with them. You know, it's easy to just add medication after medication. It's a lot harder to pick the ones that somebody, you know, really ought to take and come up with a plan to make sure they take those medicines. That's right. I'll give you an example. You know, I think in traditional primary care, you might, you know, we're not equipped to deal with, uh, you know, this this middle-aged man, 60-year-old man, COP, end-stage COPD, uh, chronic heart failure, got hep C, experience with uh, traumatic brain injury, cognitive impairment, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, severe opioid use disorder on methadone maintenance mm-hmm. treatments uh, with, with a lot of hospitalizations, a lot of kind of different chopping and changing treatments. Um, so that person comes often comes to my office, and, and I work, uh, for, the, for the audience, I work at an FQHC. I spend my clinical time at uh, Central City Concern at the Old Town Clinic, which, which is a, an, a federally qualified health center, primarily serving homeless uh, patients and people coming out of recovery. Um, and so when I get this patient, I've got 20 minutes to kind of sort through hospital records. Meanwhile, you know, he's hypoxic, you know, low 90s, high 80s, tachycardic. Um, so these are the patients who, uh, when you think that they should go to the emergency room or hospital, they, they, they actually don't want to go, or they're, they're, and there are multiple reasons for that. Um, uh, One of the reasons might be he always feels this way. That's right. He feels no worse than he felt the, any other day. That's, Why today, right? Yeah, Just, mm-hmm. or they have... Uh, loved ones or pets or things that they don't want to leave. Right. Um, mm-hmm. They also may be uh, in withdrawal and and also kind of knowing that, that that medical touch may not get them that treatment because a lot of lot of care providers aren't prepared to to treat those kind of uh, issues. Um, so it's it's kind of kind of a mismatch and and so we've done some qualitative work on mm-hmm. on some of these and we're discovering that a lot of it is not just um, the patient factors that drive this complexity but there's also a mismatch with the system so we're not we're we're not targeting the right resources the right programs to the right patients so I think part of it is a patient identification issue, and then it's also then rallying the resources in the health system to, to get them. And so that that's kind of uh, what's been driving the last couple of years for me. I think, um, and and just so the listeners know, it sounds like to me you're painting the picture of a hypothetical patient. This is no actual person, but this is the kind of patient that you see all the time in your clinic. That's right. And And it sounds like, you know, this is a very complicated patient. A number of problems that you potentially could really make a dent in, hepatitis C, for instance, especially with these novel drugs, um, a number of problems that are difficult, um, and then an underlying social situation that, um, and by difficult problems I include opioid and substance uh, abuse disorders, um, and then on to- and underlying all of this, a difficult socioeconomic condition, and often um, maybe not having social support at home, and I guess I mean, I guess I, I want to say two things. One, I want to applaud you for actually doing this work. I think if we're perfectly honest, I think that many people who go to medical school um, say they want to do this work, and then life pulls them in a different direction, and they end up doing you know, different sort of thing. And, and that's perfectly fine. But I want to applaud you for, for sticking with it and doing what I think is a very challenging job. Um, the second thing I want to ask you is if I gave you a magic wand and I said, you know, I'll give you unlimited resources. I'll give you anything you want. You're in clinic. You have a patient like this. Um, what would you What would you envision? Would you want, you know, somebody to send to this person's house every day to help them take the medicines? Would you want, you know, what are the kinds of things? If I've given you unlimited resources for a person just like you've described, what what would you what would you ideally want to do? Yeah, and I think this is kind of uh, this is a great question that leads to kind of what we are mm-hmm. we're investigating uh, with these kind of high risk teams, these ambulatory ICUs, these ambulatory intensive caring units. Um, but I think some of the things is one is longer time to spend with our with our patients. Right, you know, to twenty sort minutes is that. not enough. Twenty minutes is not enough. Um, I think, you know, I think having additional staff or having a multidisciplinary 
multidisciplinary team, like a pharmacist, to kind of go through the medications. Mm-hmm. What who what is he actually taking, or this this patient actually taking? Mm-hmm. What is he not taking, and why? And is he taking them properly? Uh, to fill his pillbox, uh, show him how to take it at home, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think two uh, two yeah. uh, is you know case management to kind mm-hmm. of identify what are the unmet needs, what are the kind of barriers to actually engaging in medical care. Uh, is it housing instability? Um, is there food insecurity? Is there access to kind of tr- substance use treatments or mental health treatments? Having a, a case manager to work with this patient. Um, having mental health. Um, I'm lucky because our clinic does have embedded uh, a mental health providers. Uh, one of the problems, though, is that we make that referral, and and patients don't associate that provider as being part of the team. They mm-hmm. think that I'm the the main provider, um, and I've got to go to another appointment to right. see this. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe kind of um, at reach or on demand mm-hmm. or a streamlined. mental person, you can just bring in the room at any moment. You know, a specialist you know, mental health co appointments, co appointments, okay, um, or kind of one stop shopping. Right, I think might be might be beneficial. Um, same thing with kind of the pharmacy things. We do have uh, kind of advanced kind of um, extra monies to to help with pharmacy, you know, chronic disease pharmacy management, but it often involves another appointment. And I think that that also goes along to kind of the payment models. We get paid based mm-hmm. on the visit and in face-to-face visits. There's so much non-visit work in primary care, and I would argue that primary care is 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 just as much, if not more, about kind of what happens between after, visits. Between visits than at, visits, than right? at the visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't get uh, compensated for that, for example. Mm-hmm. So um, changing that payment model, I think, is, is, a, is another step, uh, a broader step. So, um, so let me see if I can summarize this right. So what it sounds like to me is, you know, if you had unlimited resources, on-demand ability to access people with different skill sets, bring them in the room, work together to try to sort out what are the barriers to this person taking their medications, what can we do? Um, and social support at home maybe, maybe even a ride to and from appointments, somebody to keep track of the appointments for this person, maybe help put them into this person's phone. Um, you know, all of these kinds of things to make it easy for the person who is, at the end of the day, suffering from a number of serious medical conditions. That's what you kind of envision. And, you know, I think listeners of this podcast will know that we're not going to stop here, of course, because what we're really doing now is outlining, I think, what's something that's bioplausible. You know, this is a plausible intervention. Maybe it will actually yield results. I do want to say one thing, though, um, which is an observation that I've made, which is that I think what you're talking about, um, you know, is extremely plausible that this will really help patients. I mean, I think it's, those of us who've been in the clinic will will see that these are kind of the friction points. This is where we could potentially make a difference. Um, If you look at the amount of money we invest in for instance, novel cancer drugs, where we power a trial for a 1.6 month overall survival benefit, and we're willing to pay $100,000 per year for that drug, you know? And then you look at how much we actually study, you know, what you've proposed. Um, I think there's a big imbalance, and I think we put a lot more research funding into um, drugs and devices that have lofty profit margins, um, that really work to consolidate wealth. Um, and we put a lot less research funding in social, cultural, um, medical interventions like the kind you're talking about that actually require a lot of people coming together, maybe disperse wealth. Um, I just think it's, some, it's an observation about the research culture that even though people, and thanks to people like Dr. Gawande who put you know what you do on the map, even though people are really starting to be interested in this, the amount of investment in what you do, for instance, is nowhere near what we're spending on, you know, some dubious drugs and devices. Back to this question. The question I want to ask you is, okay, this sounds very good. And what I like about what you're doing is you're not stopping there. You're going to test it. So do you want to tell listeners, how are you actually going to put this kind of idea to the test? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think just one to add, piggyback off yeah. off your comment. I, 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 you know, that is one of the things that drives me to to do this kind of type of research mm-hmm. and why I'm doing uh, primary care. And 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 I think it it is. Um, I, I applaud all the 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 research that's going on with a lot of our advances, but. Um, um, and I, you know, I, I, I like, I hear things about like precision medicine and um, I just think that there, that we can do precision medicine for this population as well, like targeting patients that are at risk for homelessness and supporting them with um, housing support, which we do know improves, you know, um, uh, quality of life, uh, quality of care. Um, and well-being and just a, a good thing to do. And so that, that's something I learned from one of my mentors at UCSF, Mar- Margot Cushell, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that housing you know, is, is, is very impactful for health and, and also something that we can solve, but, mm-hmm. but we don't. We would rather uh, pay for sequencing the genome of every one of these patients than we would for providing them adequate housing. Yeah, it sometimes seems it that, that way. way. It, it feels, feels that, that way. way. Right, to me, yeah. it feels that way. Mm-hmm. You know, some, a lot of these social determinants of health mm-hmm. we know have have big um, impacts on health more so than some of our um, kind of medical, traditional medical uh, interventions. Um, but it, it's but providing a, housing is not sexy. You can't put it on a poster. You can't say precision housing. Right. This person has a place to live. Right. Right. And I didn't study it in medical school and and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so yeah, right. so mm. so moving forward, I think, mm. um, you know, when I when I came back to OHSU in in 2015, I, I was I was had the opportunity to get some protected time to do an evaluation because th- this clinic was noticing that that there was a problem with some of these patients that they were just not despite all this wealth of uh, you know embedded. Uh, uh, mental health within the clinic, access to substance use treatments uh, that Central City has. It's a con- kind of combined medical clinic with some housing support resources, with um, substance use treatment services, with employment, for example. But but some of these patients still just couldn't access those those things appropriately or the way that we envisioned it. So mm-hmm. um, that's that's kind of where our intervention came up, where a new intervention of having a single standalone interdisciplinary team called the, we call it the summit team. The summit. Um, and the team uh, came up with with that acronym: Streamline, Unified, Meaningfully Managed interdisciplinary team it's a mouthful I try not to, to use that but summit I think if you think about kind of um, uh, tiers of care and you think of general primary care maybe kind of a middle tier where you have some consultation and then for that for that top uh, tier of patients having a really intensive standalone primary care team mm-hmm. um, made up of you know we have one physician Two care coordinators, uh, a complex care nurse that's that's really skilled in transitions of care. Uh, we have a pharmacist. We have two kind of behavioralists. They're they're licensed clinical social workers, um, and they're kind of sitting in the room, uh, you know, together. Um, they've got a limited panel. So, for example, uh, a, a, a provider might have a panel of a thousand patients. A provider in the summit team were trying to gear it up for 200 patients, mm-hmm. um, and so so really um, low staff to patient ratios. And this is acknowledging all the work between visits because these 200 patients probably have a bunch of work that needs to be done between visits. Definitely, and mm-hmm. I think that's where the value, um, and we're trying to measure that value, um, is in, in these interventions. Is it's it's in between visits. It's the coordination. It's part coordination, and I think this is a this is an interesting lesson that we've learned. It's it's you know a lot of a lot of uh, interventions are about coordinating care. I, I think there are certain things you want to coordinate, and there are certain things you want to streamline and unify. Um, so, kind of unifying, kind of one stop shopping, having that mental health, having that substance use treatment visit while having your primary care visit, I think is kind of a unification aspect of it, coordinating with 
a housing services agency or some other community-based organization, I think improving coordination, I think, is another value that this team brings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I think some of the issues that, uh, as I was brought on board to kind of, I was basically given a lot of freedom to design it any way I wanted the, this evaluation. Um, and I, I think the CEO, now CEO, uh, Rachel Solotera, for, for giving me that, mm-hmm. uh, having that trust um, as a kind of a junior, <laughs> a fellow, actually, basically. You decide how to uh, test this, in- this intervention. That's right. Uh-huh. Um, and, how, and what have you decided? So, you know, I really, you know, I think my training at UCSF, I, and I think really kind of gave me some good thoughts about how to do some uh, program evaluation, but also kind of add some rigor to it. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the, the thinking I wanted to, to do it. And, and balance out the different needs of partners. I think that was another interesting thing is this is, this is an organization that provides really good care, is really well respected in the community, um, but didn't have kind of a research focus. And I think that's where the partnership with OHSU, which, which you know, is kind of, kind of our typical research university, um, wanted to kind of draw on both those strengths. Um, and so I think balancing the needs of, of the stakeholder, you know, we want to give this, we think this is, uh, will work. We want to give it to, a, to as many people as possible that, that should be in it. So a traditional kind of randomized control trial was, wasn't necessarily on the table or, or wasn't going to be, you know, that, that took some, um, uh, there's debate on that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, from the research perspective, um, and a lot of the evaluations uh, prior to this have been kind of pre-post-evaluation showing drops, and I, and I think um, um, that was something that there are limitations to that, mm-hmm. those kind of designs. The listeners will know I don't like those designs. <laughs> okay, okay. I like the RCTs. But, uh, and so then, don't keep us in suspense. Oh, yeah. Tell so, us what you, so, what you do. So yeah. what we did was kind of a pragmatic trial, and mm-hmm. we, we used called, called a weightless control design. Mm-hmm. Um, it where, is randomized. Which is randomized. A mm-hmm. randomized weightless control design mm-hmm. where, um, so basically... Uh, PCPs or, or providers would re- would refer their patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, we left the criteria pretty broad, but we had some specific criteria, more than one hospitalization over the past six months. Mm-hmm. They had to have kind of two of three of these uh, chronic medical conditions, chronic kidney disease, uncontrolled diabetes, COPD, for example, hepatitis C. We, we have a lot of uh, skin uh, tissue infections, mm. uh, chronic infections, cellulitis, MRSA, exactly, mm. exactly. So uh, you know, a couple of those conditions, uh, plus or minus, you know, a mental health condition um, or a substance use disorder. So your inclusion criteria are basically the exclusion criteria of every other randomized clinical <laughs> trial. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, and so the team reviews it. They they accept the referral. And once that happens, that's where the research came in is we would come in, uh, we had our own kind of uh, inclusion, exclusion criteria. They had to be able to consent. They, ha- they have to kind of go through, um, you know, a teach back process. Um, we, we did exclude patients that maybe had less than six months to live. They were, you know, on hospice because we wanted to kind of ma- see, make sure that they w- give them the best chance to do the, the follow-up. Um, but but our, our research assistant, our research team would reach out to the patient, consent them, um, go through the inclusion exclusion t- criteria, and then administer a baseline survey with a lot of psychosocial instruments. We, we assessed social support. We assessed, uh, we administered the, the DAS, a drug screening. We, we assessed cognitive status. We assessed SF12, uh, quality of life, mm-hmm. functional status. At baseline. At baseline. And what's your primary endpoint? Our primary endpoint is six-month uh, hospital utilization and ED visits. Wow, okay. Um, our second... Uh-huh. Secondary. Um, ...is some patient-centered outcomes. Uh, mainly the patient activation measure was something that we thought this team would uh, work with patients, try to increase self-efficacy, 
uh, as well as lower treatment barriers. Mm-hmm. So, so just some some of some of the the principles I think this team utilizes is let's let's take a patient-centered approach. Let's give them a really long, comprehensive visit to kind of assess patient goals, kind of get a big picture from a medical and a psychosocial point of view, um, and then come up with a care plan and um, find ways to increase self-efficacy while lowering treatment burdens Mm -hmm. by simplifying medications. Um, And what's your sample size? Our sample size, our target sample size is 200 patients. Okay. Um, we are at 150. Oh wow. Okay. You're three quarters through recruiting. Uh, yes, and uh, it's it's been a, a slog, I would say. Over what um, period of time have you accrued? This is over two years. Okay. So I think that's one of the lessons learned is that while we we think that they're they are definitely amongst us, it's just really hard to recruit and mm. retain these patients because- I see, it's um, already a challenging environment as is to recruit to a clinical study. That's right. Mm. Um, these are patients that don't even wanna go to their primary care appointments often. Mm. Uh, often. Um, and so we're kind of recruiting them while they're hospitalized, for example. Mm. We're recruiting them at um, at housing uh, organizations where where they're at, so I think that's that's been kind of the the lessons learned. It's not a traditional uh, trial in terms of like, you know, mm-hmm. ease of recruitment. Um, and, and we're doing this kind of on a on a low budget, shoestring budget. Uh, yeah, this is an unfunded kind of uh, kind of uh, a project uh, uh, with with some support from Central City, from OHSU, from from some of the partners, Care Oregon. Um, and, and yeah, so, so again, the intervention being low patient to staff ratio, more time, more flexibility to kind of do these outreach activities that could involve um, patient visits. It, it does involve maybe accompanying patients to specialty appointments. Um, it involves kind of co-appointments with mental health, with behavioral health. Um, and then, so after kind of completing this kind of really comprehensive psychosocial uh, assessment, um, then we randomize, we basically randomize them to either start with the intervention right away mm-hmm. or be placed on a six month wait list. And that's kind of the waitlist control, the randomized waitlist control aspect where they remain in their usual primary care for six months. Then we kind of reassess, we redo that baseline survey, and then they kind of join the team. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's, and that's okay because your primary endpoint is at six months anyway. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, and and I think it gives us a lot of this design gives us you know not just kind of you know a randomized control treatment comparison, but we'll be able to do some pre post. We'll mm-hmm. be able to do some crossover analyses, um, and I think just gives strength to kind of you know as a pilot project. I think this is this is exploratory. This isn't. Um, the the done deal, um, but I do think that this meets a gap because I think a lot of the interventions that are out there, um, there's very few that actually pertain to this type of population, this high risk homeless, high risk substance use uh, population. A lot of um, and a lot of the work that a lot of the the model that ours is built on is built from the Stanford model, the Stanford uh, coordinated care, and and the team actually took a visit to the Stanford team way back when in 2015. Um, and I think it's pretty obvious now, but maybe not then, uh, there are differences. The, the Stanford model takes the, the, the medically complex patients who, who kind of work at Stanford, um, and that's a lot different from the population here. We, we, we don't have, you know, a lot of our patients are unable to work that are on SSI, they're on disability. Um, so, so, so immediately kind of, we kind of realized, hey, this, what, what works in one setting may not work in, in our setting. Mm. I just have a few thoughts to close. I know our time is so limited, but uh, the first thing I wanted to tell listeners was interested listeners in this topic, uh, Brian kind of alluded to the fact that before he even embarked on his randomized control trial, he had done a deep dive into the literature to see what had been tried and what had succeeded or failed. And so they published a paper in the Journal of General Internal Medicine entitled Effectiveness of Intensive Primary Care Interventions, a Systematic Review by Edwards and colleagues. Uh, It's a very interesting paper. I encourage you to take a look. 
And um, my closing thought for you uh, is just to say, I think um, for listeners out there, Brian is the reason why you went to medical school. Um, I, you know, and I, I, I just really want to, to hit this point very hard. You know, he's doing the work that I think is so important in a population that doesn't get the kind of research and study um, and certainly research funding that would be deserved and would be commensurate with the burden of disease and the burden of cost and the burden of utilization. Um, it's an under-recognized and underserved population. Um, that's just a simple fact. Uh, and he's he's doing something that he believes in a great deal, and I think many of the listeners will agree, and I have a strong intuition that I agree with a lot of this a great deal. But he doesn't stop there. He's subjecting it to rigorous clinical appraisal because he's learned um, that that's the most important thing you have to do is not to let your hypothesis and hope get in the way of evidence. And so, you know, my hat is off to Dr. Brian Chan um, for coming on the plenary session stage, telling us what he's working on, and for doing this very, very hard work. And I think for anyone out there who is looking for inspiration for why you went to medical school in the first place, look no further. Dr. Brian Chan. Thank you very much. I really appreciate having, uh, you having me. And, and I, yeah, it's, it's something that uh, I hope that uh, I could exude that passion because yeah. I think it really is. I hear it. It's yeah. a, it's, I, love, I love this work. I think a research, I'm a junior research, uh, in a junior research career. I don't know where it, where it might take me. Um, it's hard. I think this kind of work is, is, has challenges. Um, but I, I'm a positive person. I, I really do think um, this is at my core uh, what you said. You said it very nicely is what drives me in medicine, why I enjoy primary care, why I enjoy research careers, um, enjoy talking to, to people like you. Thank you so much for coming here. And um, I, I hope you really do serve as an inspiration to our listeners. So thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.